uh, we're going to wrap up a series today called Christmas Chaos. Christmas Chaos. And if there's anything that you get out of Christmas uh, this year, anything at all that you get out of it, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, did I get a good gift? You know, did I get good presents? Did I have good food? I'm looking forward to the food very much. There is some, some I think it's a fruit cake or a black cake or a, I've, I've got I've got this cake in in the fridge and I am so looking forward to having some of this cake with a cup of tea. So, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about whether you had fun or not. I'm talking about when you think about Christmas and you think about Christ. You think about Jesus and the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. I want you to understand above all things that when we think of Christmas, we have a very kind of peaceful idea in our head and Jesus being born in these very uh, peaceful circumstances and all that. But if you read the story of the birth of Jesus, which you'll find in the Bible's New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, chapter 2. You could read the story in 10 minutes, okay? A child could read the story. Very, very simple to understand. And hey, you can even skip the genealogy if you want to, and you'll still get something out of the story, all right? But when you read it, you're going to find, if you think about it, that it's really chaotic. There's a lot of messy stuff going on on planet Earth and in the lives of the people who experience the birth of Jesus. A lot of messy stuff. But even in that stuff, we can still see themes of hope and love and joy and peace. And today, I want to talk to you about Love and the theme of love running through the story of the birth of Jesus, all right? But before I get to the meat of it, I'm going to show this picture again, which is such a nice, a nice, pretty picture. And last week we talked about how that picture, if you really read the story, the picture is somewhat misleading. Uh, it's, there, there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, and, and today we're going to look at specifically the wise men or the, the, the magi, as we, as we sometimes call them. That's probably a better way of saying it than wise men. Uh, but we're going to look at those guys on the left-hand side of the screen. Uh, but who can tell me, and you can shout it out if you like or post a comment on YouTube or Facebook, uh, what's wrong with this picture when we look at these wise men? Pardon? Yeah, if you, the first problem with it is it seems when you read the account that they actually arrived on the scene after Jesus was born. And quite possibly up to two years after Jesus was born, the wise men arrived. Matthew chapter 2 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, or in some translations, we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Huh? 
They weren't there the night that it happened? No. And you see that eventually when they got there, there isn't even a mention of Joseph being there. It just says, it doesn't say that he wasn't, but it certainly doesn't say that he was. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they had a dialogue with King Herod, who's quite disturbed by this news. We'll get into that in a second. They went on their way, these magi, and the star that they saw, it seems to stop, it seems to move, apparently, and stops above the place where Jesus is, and they go to a house. And when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it seems like they came after. It seems like Joseph's not even mentioned there. It kind of looks a little more like this. And Jesus is not a newborn at the time. He might be up to two years old, so I put a little circle on him over there. So if I go back, you know, this is the traditional picture. They've got a little, little boy on the right-hand side, so I just took him and moved him over a little bit and made him look like Jesus, okay? So pardon my bad photo editing, right? But that might be a little bit more of what it looked like. And by the way, that star, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to mislead you. Um, I'm not sure that we can say for sure that when Jesus was born, the moment that he was born, that that star was above the place that he was born. I think we can say that when he was born, these, these magi who were from the east, apparently Persia, Babylon area, saw this thing in the sky. We still are confused by it. It's very mysterious as to what this star could have been. Some people attribute it to a natural phenomenon. I personally don't. I think there's something supernatural about it because the way that some people see it, some people don't. It seems to move. It's, it's very odd, very unusual. But in any case, we're, we're not that sure that the thing was right above the place where Jesus was born when he was born. It certainly shone when he was born. But the wise men, they, or the magi, they made it there to that house. They got it right, and they saw this child, probably maximum two years old at the time, and they, they do their thing. So what's this got to do with the theme of love? Well, it has a lot to do with it. A question that you can ask yourself, how do you express love toward God? Toward God. I'm not talking about love for your friend or love for your husband or love for your wife or love for your children or love for your parents, but how does one express love toward God? It seems to be a little bit different than the way that we would express love to a person. You know, even when you go by the standard of the Bible, which has a very, very high standard for how a person is to love another person. Uh, there's a theme of service. When you love someone, you serve them. When you look at the, the Bible's picture of marriage, there's a tremendous high call of service and submission to one another and putting the other person's needs ahead of your needs and so on. You see this kind of thing in the pages of the Bible, but when you express love to God, it seems to be a little bit different. And I would, I would suggest to you this Christmas Eve 
2022 that the way that you show that you love God is to worship God. The way you show love to your friend, your child, your spouse isn't to worship them. But the way that you, or at least it shouldn't be, the way that you show love to God is to worship God. Now, how do you worship God? Well, we'll get into that in a second. But these magi, they are the first people in recorded history, if you go by the pages of the Gospels, who actually specifically worship Jesus. He's not even grown. He's an infant. Who knows if he's even speaking yet, Jesus. But they are worshiping him. You see this in Matthew chapter 2. They make their way from hundreds of miles away to the city of Jerusalem. And they cause quite a ruckus when they get there. When you read the story, they, they arrive on the scene and they ask a very curious question. Now, we traditionally have three wise men in all of our presentations. I do not think that there were three of them. Because the scripture says here that when Herod the Great... And Herod the Great is the first of a series of, it's a dynasty. Uh, there are several Herods mentioned in the pages of the New Testament and in the history books. Herod the Great is the first one. Essentially, he's a client king for Rome. Well, when Herod hears of this question that is asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? These strangers from a strange land arrive on the scene, ask this question, and they say that they have seen a star, which seems to indicate that this king is born. And they say, we have come to worship him. We've traveled all this way. We know he's here somewhere. And we have come to worship him. I do not believe that there were three because it says when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Wow. So one question from three men who live five, six hundred miles away. One question disturbs the whole city of Jerusalem. That's a big city. That's not Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Bethlehem is a little tiny little place. Jerusalem is big. How can three men who we, we traditionally view them as these kind of you know, strange, uh, they were into magic maybe, they were into astrology maybe, they, this is the way we typically view them, and you know, they, they travel on these camels, and you know, they arrive. And, but how can they throw the whole city into disturbance? Many think, and I would agree, that there was a larger caravan of, of these magi who arrived on the scene. And they had come, most likely, from Persia or Babylon, which was not under the rulership of Rome at the time. So these people may have arrived and looked like a threat to Jerusalem. They certainly looked like a threat to Herod the Great. And the whole city is up in arms because they say, listen, 
There, the king of the Jews has been born. We know he's here somewhere, and we have come to worship him. Haven't you heard the news? Haven't you watched the, you know, Israel News Network? Well, we have. We looked up in the sky, and we saw, like, your king is here somewhere. This is very disturbing. Herod has the title of king of the Jews. He's disturbed. The whole city is disturbed. And so he calls a meeting, and he gets his uh, the t chief priests and teachers of the laws, religious group of people, and he says, listen, tell me what the Bible says about the Messiah, the Savior, the king who is to come. Where is he supposed to be born? And so they tell him, well, it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. That's where he's supposed to be born. Out of there will come a shepherd who will rule my people Israel. So it's in Bethlehem, not too far away from Jerusalem. So Herod, he, he says, bring these magi over to me secretly. And they, they have a little meeting kind of in private. doesn't say how. And he says, tell me the exact time that you saw that star appear. So the Magi tell them. And he says, all right, go to Bethlehem and go and find the child. Go and search for the child. And when you find him, you come back to me and you report to me so that I too may worship him. Well, they do find Jesus and they do worship Jesus in a very specific way. But they do not return to Herod the Great. They are warned not to do that. They end up taking another route back to wherever they came from. But they are the first people who actually physically, it says, bowed down and worshipped him. And that was their mission, to travel all that way so that they could worship Jesus. This, I believe, is how we express our love to God, is to worship him. Now, how did these, these magi, that's the word that's, that's used, we translate it sometimes wise men, but how did they know what they knew? Like, it seems they're a really odd group of people. I mean, they're probably not Jews, although there's a theory that maybe under the whole story of the book of Esther in the Old Testament where people started to become Jews at the end of the story after Esther is used to deliver the, the whole nation from a genocide you see people start to become Jews some people say well maybe these magi were in that lot and maybe they did become these kind of God-fearing Jews that's one view but they seem like really odd folks they seem way out there from hundreds of miles away this word magi is used only one other time in the New Testament referring to an occultist into uh, you know magic and so on in the book of Acts uh, not in a good way. So it, the word is unusual. It, it was used for a person in the ancient world who was um, into astronomy, astrology, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, it's kind of a mixed worldview of many different things, maybe Zoroastrianism, maybe some astronomy thrown in there. I mean, they're an odd bunch, and yet they know this. How do they know to come on this journey? How do they know to 
ask this question, how do they know and what do they know? The prevailing view uh, out there is that they knew of a prediction that you see in the book of Numbers in the Bible's Old Testament. It's made by the guy with the story of the talking donkey. Do you know his name? Yeah, ba Balaam, or you pronounce it Balaam. And he was paid by Moab to curse the nation of Israel, the book of Numbers. It didn't work out for Moab. <laughs> and Balaam was an odd, an odd uh, prophetic character as well. And uh, you, you have to read the story from Numbers 22, 23, 24. But in this whole series of oracles that he pronounces over the nation of Israel, he says this little passage here. And this is the prevailing view as to how the wise men, the magi, knew about some sort of star that would lead them to the king of the Jews. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, this is him speaking, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. And here's what he says. I see him now. Uh, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now it's a a Moabite king who hires Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Listen to what Balaam says about this king to come. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. Oh boy. So the tables are going to turn when this messianic figure comes. And that's it. That is the only passage, and it's an obscure passage, folks, that maybe these magi had to go on. And this is, you look at all of the scholars who write about this today, and they think that maybe that's the prediction that they piggybacked on, and that's why they made that trek, you know, hundreds of miles, Persia, Babylon, somewhere around there, talking about modern-day Iraq, traveling all the way over to Jerusalem. Because of that, I mean, it is really obscure. It remains mysterious. We do see in the prophet Isaiah, which is like six, six and a half centuries before Jesus is born. We do see something there. It's, again, very obscure. But apparently these gifts of gold and incense were not uncommon to be offered to kings. Verse 6 of Isaiah 60, herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and uh, all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Some people say it could have been that, but these are very, very obscure things in the Bible's Old Testament. They are not interpreted for us. We really have no idea how they were able to figure this out, but they did. And when they arrive and they finally get to Jesus, they present to Jesus the famous gold, myrrh, and frankincense, or as some people say, gold, myrrh, and Frankenstein, right? So what you say, well, what are these gifts that are presented, you know, because 
they're very specific in how they do this. They bow down and they, it says they bowed and worshiped him and presented him with this gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And he's not even two years old yet. Maximum two years old if you read Matthew chapter two. So what's the deal with these? And when you research these items, they're not uncommon for that time in history in the ancient world we do see these are extremely valuable some say that the frankincense and the myrrh were just as valuable in that time as gold we do know from an inscription that has been found that um uh, King Seleucus II offered to the god Apollo in the temple of Miletus in 243 BC, so way before Jesus was born, did offer to that god Apollo gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's not like this was something that was uncommon and really strange and really unusual in the ancient world. When you look at these things, they're really, really interesting. The myrrh, uh, so says a professor of Mediterranean history at the University of Cambridge, says the thing about the myrrh is the smell. And uh, it is, it's a perfume that has a longer smell than any other aromatic um, and you, you, um, it's cultivated from trees there uh, in Eritrea and South Arabia. Very, very interesting uh, reading about the history of it. Um, frankincense and myrrh were the prestige products of the earliest trade routes to navigate down the Red Sea. The pharaohs, the Egyptian pharaohs, burned masses of myrrh before the Egyptian gods when they returned in triumph from war. Plenty of myrrh was also used for embalming the dead, which might explain, so says this author, the acute interest that the female pharaoh Hatshepsut had in sending a fleet of magnificent ships to acquire myrrh, along with lions, giraffes, ivory, and a few other exotic items before she died in 1458 BC. Very, very valuable stuff. In the time of Jesus, the incense that was used in the Jewish temple had this in it. It had all kinds of spices, including myrrh, and frankincense, it was extremely valuable. So frankincense, this is a type of spice. Myrrh, this is a type of spice, very, very valuable. We do see myrrh in the New Testament in several places, especially in the death of Jesus on the cross. Myrrh is used or offered to Jesus as a narcotic to numb the pain, and he refuses it. So it was very known, very valuable. These things were collected from trees, a difficult process, but just as valuable as the gold. So they brought these gifts to them very deliberately, very intentionally, and they were very, very valuable for the time. So this is not, you know, well, let's just find something here and there and make this haphazard visit to Jerusalem to visit yet another king that we saw because we like to look at stars. No, no, folks, this is a very intentional, very deliberate act from these magi, and we learn about 
worship from them. They travel a great distance to worship. To worship. They bow down physically in front of this infant. I mean, that's a, that's a, a quite a, a gesture of humility. They are acknowledging this little child is the king of the Jews and he is deity and we will appropriately bow down before him and worship him and present these gifts to him as if he even knew what those gifts meant. He's not even two years old and they're presenting these gifts to them, presume to him. Presumably, this is for Jesus at some time in the future when he will understand that, hey, you had this visit from these magi and they brought you these gifts. A great, great distance to worship. It causes me to wonder, what lengths do I go through to worship God? Because I don't have to travel to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem to go and worship God, to worship Jesus. The teaching of the Bible is that the Christian carries the presence of Jesus within the person. So at what length, though, will I go to show that I love God by worshiping him? And how do I worship him? What is it that I do to show him that I worship him? Well, folks, I mean, that involves your whole life. That involves a rearrangement of your time and your priorities and your, your abilities and your gifts and your, even your money. I mean, when you, when you truly worship God, it means that everything is shifted around him as the center of your life, as the center of your attention. You know, now we, we have a, a lot of talk about, well, you know, you've got to worship in person, and when you're part of a church, you've got to come and worship in person, and well, no, you can watch online, or no, you can watch in person, folks. That's not, it's, the question is the motive of the heart. You know, COVID brought about a situation where people, people said, ah, I don't, I don't have to go to church every single Sunday and nothing bad's going to happen to me. You know, because some people, that's why they go to church. They say, I better go, better pack up the kids and go to church because if I don't, maybe something bad will happen. I want to be blessed. I want God to see my worship, and so I go to church. Folks, that's, that's a motive that's not going to carry you very far. And what COVID did was it showed people, oh, I stayed home. I watched it online. Nothing bad happened to me. Oh, you mean I don't have to go every week? Oh, and it, it, what it did was it exposed people's motives we should have a motive to worship and to put God first. Not because we're afraid something's going to happen, but because of who he is. And these wise men, these magi, they said, everything stops now. We've seen the star. We are packing up. We are preparing these very specific gifts, and we are going to present them to this this king and worship him they acted on what they understood from god how did they understand it how did they get the information we're not sure but they took it really seriously 
When you worship God, you take seriously what God says. You're reading the Bible, you see something, you take seriously what he says. If you profess to worship him, you will, you will stand at attention when you know that God is saying something to you, either personally or as you're reading or whatever. They certainly did, and they were very intentional. They were very prepared, and they took quite a risk. I mean, they run into Herod the Great, who is not happy. They're warned later on, supernaturally, don't go back there. Don't go back to Herod the Great. And they go the other way. They, they move the other way. There's risk involved in worship. There's, I mean, there are people uh, uh, around the world, maybe not so much in North America, and just them gathering to worship Jesus puts them at risk, folks. But that's what you do when you worship. You rearrange things to say, I put God first in my life, and I demonstrate that by intentionality, by preparation, by risk, by acting on what I understand God is saying to me. Sometimes I will go through great lengths and inconvenience myself to worship God. But it's, it's very obvious that these magi were worshipers of God. When we worship God, just as we finish up here, we express that by doing what God says. How can a person say that they're a worshiper of God when they don't do what God says. And this is right out of the lips of Jesus. John 14. If you love me. Keep my commands. Whoever has my commands. And keeps them. Is the one who loves me. The one who loves me. Will be loved by my father. And I too will love them. And show myself to them. You can't profess to be a worshiper of God this Christmas 2022, if you don't do what God says, the scripture would oppose you. The scripture would say, you got to fix that. you got to be obedient to what God says to you if you profess to worship him. And what you see all over the pages of scripture, including the Old Testament, is that love of God. So worshiping God is expressed by loving him. Loving him is expressed by worshiping him. Worshiping him is expressed by obeying him. But it, the scripture connects the love of God with the love that you show to others, to your neighbor. So Jesus, in a conversation with the religious folks, they ask him, they test him, and they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus, very brilliantly replying from the Old Testament books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The apostle John would write later on. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother. He says you're a, a liar. He says you can't profess to love God, but hate another person. 
wow, that's very strong language, but this is what the Bible does. It links the love that you have with God with the love that you have for people. And the two have to be running in sync. John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the mark of the Christian. It's a discipline of worship, and you cannot disconnect the two. So I wonder, as we're Christmas Eve, almost lunchtime, uh, 2022, where you are at in this whole theme of love. And musicians, you can come up and you can play as we close here. But maybe you never thought about love for God in a practical way. Maybe you never realized, hey, there's a, there's a way for me to do that. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, there's some things that I've got to shift around. Maybe I can use this Christmas to shift around things in my life and say, wait a second, I'm worshiping something else. I'm devoting all of my time and all of my talent and all of my treasure to something or to someone else. And folks, that's never going to satisfy you. It's going to take you so far, and then you're going to have to find something else to worship. You're going to have to find something else that becomes the center of your life. And I'll tell you what God wants. He wants to be that one who becomes the center of what you do, of what you think, of how you live. Let's pray together this Christmas Eve. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the example that we see uh, here in this odd story of these these magi these wise men and how much they teach us and how much they show us in this simple little story i pray lord that we would truly seek you first and your kingdom and your righteousness is so easy to look at all the other things that this world has to offer but this Christmas may we once again put Jesus on the throne of our hearts we pray together today in Jesus name amen amen well Merry Christmas everyone and thank you so much for coming out this morning don't run out too quickly okay you can take your time and you can uh, if you're available next week on saturday night uh, you can register we're gonna have a great time over at the bible college on december the 31st be careful driving out there and have a very merry and blessed christmas everyone god bless you
Oh, you.